Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Suleiman, a consultant endocrinologist and diabetologist at the Imperial College Diabetes Center in Abu Dhabi. Dr. Suleiman studied at the world-renowned Oxford Center for Diabetes, Endocrinology, and Metabolism, earned her PhD at Oxford University, has authored several research papers, and presented her research at major international conferences. She has been selected to be part of a team to update UAE guidelines for management of type 2 diabetes and is also a representative to the World Obesity Federation's Regional Recommendations Expert Group. We talk all about insulin resistance, obesity, diabetes, and the risk of future diseases. We talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome. We talk about the importance of movement, diet, nutrition, and we talk about epigenetics, which is actually our ability to change the genes we are born with in the way that they are expressed. It is the power that we have in our hands. I hope you enjoy our interview. Hi, Dr. Suleiman, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me here to talk about all the things that we are most concerned about. But just before we get started, I wanted to ask you, what drew you to the to become an endocrinologist and then to become interested in obesity and diabetes and epige- epigenetics? What, did you always want to be a doctor? So I, both my parents are physicians okay. um, and... As I grew up, I absolutely did not want to become a doctor. But then um, I think at some point my dad had a kidney stone and I decided I needed to understand what was happening in the world. And and that was how I went into medicine in the first place. Um, How I went into diabetes and endocrinology. As a junior doctor in the UK, you rotate around lots of different specialties. And I was very lucky to have worked um, with a fantastically inspirational diabetologist stroke endocrinologist at Bournemouth Hospital called David Kerr, who at the time was one of the leaders of using insulin pump therapy. Mm. I was very young. um, And that kind of changed my perspective of what you can do with people who are born deficient of something and how you can actually release them from having injections four times a day to having a near normal um, life. And that's, that's how I started into diabetes. I then um, halfway through my training or or the majority of my training I did at Oxford um, at the Oxford Centre for Diabetes and Endocrinology, which was just a fantastic place to train. I cannot cannot say how blessed I am to have trained there, Um, was experienced lots of different specialties within endocrinology. um, And one of my life changing events was meeting a patient, a young girl, who was slim, she was um, not obese, but was predisposed to diabetes and actually presented with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Mm. I met her in a clinic and I spoke to one of the professors in Oxford, um, Dr. Anna Gloin, and said, well, she's interesting. There's something going on with her, which isn't normal. And she said, well, why don't you do a PhD on that? 
Um, and I kind of took, took a couple of weeks to think about it. And between the Oxford Centre for Metabol Metabolism and the Diabetes and Endocrine Centre, I did end up doing a PhD looking at insulin resistance, body fat distribution, how that affects people, why some people who aren't obese are predisposed to diabetes, whereas some people who, who do have suffered with obesity do not. Um, and that's basically where it started from. I then had the pleasure of leading a clinic in Oxford on severe insulin resistance. Um, my uh, life kind of revolves around my family, as most people's do. My husband is a banker. So we moved from the UK to Hong Kong. And then we decided to relocate to the Middle East because he could move his team here and I could work as well. Um, and I've been here for the last 10 or 11 years at the uh, at Imperial College London Diabetes Centre. Again, a fantastic place to work. I was given the opportunity to lead the genetics service. And as of last year, I also lead the um, management of obesity service. We collaborate with Health Point Hospital, which is another part of Mbadala Healthcare, and they have the bariatric surgery arm. So we're able to offer the full spectrum of assessment and management of obesity from lifestyle advice to medication, um, dietary advice to surgery. Um, and that's, that's basically where we are today. Epigenetics is one of these things that's come out probably in the last 10 years, but has really developed hugely in that time. And it provides that link between, well, obesity or diabetes is genetic or is it environmental? There are some things that make us think, well, it must be genetic because people in certain families um, follow the same line, be it uh, obesity or diabetes. So for example, if you look at children who are adopted, they mirror their parents of origin rather than the environment they grow in, which is very interesting. But equally, our genes take thousands, if not tens of thousands of years to change. So how is it that obesity and diabetes have progressed so rapidly in tens, less than a hundred years really? Um, and so epigenetics is how your body adapts to the environment by altering genes. And what that means is that there are certain chemical reactions that occur on genes to allow them to express themselves or not. And perhaps the best example is yourself or I we grew out of one cell, but actually that one cell became an eye, a kidney, an arm, a liver. Um, and the only thing that's happened is that different genes were regulated differently to multiply into a certain. So that's how extreme it can be, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about small differences in your risk of how you use insulin, your, your risk of um, increasing your weight, where you put that weight down, um, so if we look at heritability or how likely you are to develop obesity, that's about 70%. But if we look at actual genes that cause obesity and transmit from one generation to another, we only know about five or 10%. And the difference is probably epigenetics. And is epigenetics then like just actually what it is, what is it? Because I don't think people, a lot of people understand. It's almost like your ability to control what happens, the expression, but how? Yes. So there are, for genes, so what are genes? Genes are blocks of um, memory, if you like. They're the genetic material within every single cell that 
tells us how to produce proteins that keep our body moving. Uh, and that happens across all organisms, all living organisms. Um, for a gene to work, there's both an accelerator and a brake. And that's the epigenetics. Um, so people, for example, who um, are exposed to an environment with, uh, during, their, during the pregnancy, so during their development, that has a high sugar content or has um, a lot of microplastics or toxins or a smoking mum or lots of different things will have their genes regulated differently to someone who is exposed to an exercising mum who um, maintains um, a healthy diet as best as possible. It, life would be very boring if nobody had anything as a treat, but as best as possible. And it is particularly relevant during pregnancy or even pre-pregnancy when a mum or dad are, are thinking of having a child, having a healthy ovum and a sperm, then develops into a healthy embryo, um, that memory remains for the rest of that child's life. So their risk of developing obesity or diabetes is increased from pre-birth really. Um, similarly, the first five years of life are very important and what a child is exposed to during the five years of life becomes a memory um, that regulates the brakes and accelerator for their genes. Um, and, the, and the disturbing but also very positive thing is that memory is then transmitted to future generations. However, if a person chooses to change that and work against that to readjust the epigenetic regulation, that also will transmit to future uh, generations. Um, and that's the beauty of it. And the, uh, the kind of extreme example, which tells us that this is true, is that people who have undergone bariatric surgery, for example, um, following the, the initial stage where we do not recommend pregnancy, a healthier weight, a healthier metabolic profile, diabetes, high blood pressure, everything else, tend to have healthier babies. Mm -hmm. And we're now getting data of sort of five, 10 year old children who are born to parents with bariatric surgery, who are healthier than their offspring who were born earlier. Okay, that is fascinating. That is fascinating. So a lot of it is in your control. Um, can we just go back to your thesis for a minute? I'm, I'm curious about insulin resistance, obesity, not obesity because you you know that just I caught right onto that because there are people who have insulin resistance who aren't obese there are people who have it who are obese there are people in between who, like you said there's all sorts I I sometimes think people don't quite understand how insulin sensitivity and resistance is the precursor for all this stuff that we're fighting down the road it's it seems like a benign term and I'm just wondering if you can sort of a, describe it and what the potential for it is. And why do some people have it when they're overweight and don't, and some people have it when they're underweight? If you can address that <laughs> small topic. Okay. So, so let's start with two basic things. First of all, there are rules and there are exceptions to the rule. As a general rule, insulin resistance is well linked to carrying extra weight or being obese, particularly central obesity. So where you carry your fat does matter. Um, and so that's, that's the basic rule. The other thing to say is that obesity is absolutely not a choice. It's not something that people decide. It is very genetically determined. As I said, 
a short while ago, 70% of the heritability of obesity or 70% of obesity is heritable. What food choices you make are heritable. It is only the second trait in heritability. So how tall you are is the most heritable trait. And then the next most her heritable trait is whether you suffer with obesity or not. Mm. Um, so that's, that's a basic building block of that. Insulin is a key hormone that we cannot live without. It's produced by the pancreas. And what it does is it opens cells for the fuels, particularly glucose, but actually all the fuels, so fats, um, glucose to enter into each cell. And that's why it's key. So for, for babies, for example, it's what allows them to grow because the fuel goes into the cells and it's utilized properly. It also um, can be dysregulated and just in, in simplistic terms to explain insulin sensitivity and resistance. If you think of insulin as um, a key to the cell, if the key doesn't fit very well, then it doesn't work very well and you need many more keys to be tried. Mm. Whereas if a key fits well, um, then it just opens and it works. And that's the insulin sensitivity versus resistance. Another example I tend to use with patients that they love very much is if you think about your washing, if you use a good quality washing powder, then you will use one scoop and you'll get clean washing. And if you use um, a not so expensive washing powder, you may end up using three or four scoops. You can still get your washing clean. Um, and that is insulin resistance. Basically the body needs more insulin. Unfortunately, not the whole body will be insulin resistant because if the whole body was insulin resistant, your body would just produce more insulin to its ability but some bits of the body will be more insulin sensitive. So for example, people with insulin resistance will develop thickened or dark skin around the neck because um, the skin is insulin sensitive. People with insulin resistance will develop polycystic ovarian syndrome because the ovaries are exposed to higher levels of insulin and they produce more, um, more over. It's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that the ovaries are better if anything the production is slightly dysfunctional but but that is one of the side effects of having too much insulin um, because insulin is a storage hormone as we said once people do develop insulin resistance it then becomes a chicken and egg situation it's harder to lose weight if you're insulin resistant um, and and that needs careful management okay i hope i've answered your question you have you have you've mentioned because uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome twice now. And you mentioned that girl that was um, sort of the catalyst for your PhD. And I'm just interested in it. Uh, we have a story coming up and I'm just very interested in it because I seem to be hearing about it everywhere. And I'm also hearing of links to later problems in midlife uh, when you have it. So could you just speak a little bit to it? What, why so many, why do you think so many women have it and why, you know, why that, that person that you, that sparked you in your PhD you know, who wasn't overweight, because we hear overweight is a big, is a big risk factor. Can you just, yeah, talk about that a little bit? So she was actually not only not overweight, her, her body mass index, which is what we tend to measure weight in, was 18. So she was wow. on paper overweight, exactly. Yet she had quite marked insulin resistance. As, as it evolved later on from my PhD, she did have a gene that was disrupted. Um, and so she was predisposed to insulin resistance and had a um, 
metabolic profile, similar to someone who probably had a body mass index of 40 or more. And we know there are different disorders. Um, lipodystrophies, a clever word, all it means is the fat doesn't distribute normally, are disorders that we know about, where people are unable to put fat on their arms or lower limbs, um, but store most of their fat in the abdomen. Mm -hmm. And that is not very helpful because um, that's where the fat is most, for want of a better word, promiscuous. It is more able to come into the bloodstream very quickly and the sugar, and therefore these people are at risk of diabetes, of high cholesterol, of heart attacks. Um, whereas fat around the hips, um, I mean, we don't tend to like it very much when you're trying to wear a dress, but actually it appears to be more healthy for one because it's the equivalent of having um, food in the freezer as opposed to the fridge. It doesn't go bad so quickly. It is stored for a longer period and it is healthier. Okay, very interesting. Do you have a theory of why we're seeing such a, uh, so many more cases of PCOS these days? So polycystic ovarian syndrome is just a reflection. I, I think we need to accept that it is a variant of normal now because between one in 10 to one in 20 women suffer with a degree of polycystic ovarian syndrome. It is a reflection of the insulin resistance rather than, there are some genetic disorders of course, but actually um, in the majority of ladies, um, it, it is something that can be improved with a, a more healthy lifestyle, with reducing weight. Um, because, it, As I said, it's a chicken and egg situation. If you are insulin resistant, that exposes your ovaries to more insulin. They, in a normal cycle, a woman will produce lots of ova in the ovaries, and then one, or sometimes two, will start to enlarge and give a message to all the rest that it's my turn this month, mm. and can you all go away um, in, in a healthy woman? That then produces lots of hormones. The enlarged one produces lots of hormones. It releases the ovum, and if there is fertilization, it becomes a baby, and if it doesn't, the whole cycle starts again. What happens in ladies with polycystic ovarian syndrome, in part due to the very high insulin, is that the, a, a small war occurs between the ova and nobody gives in. So they overdevelop to medium size and they all produce extra hormones. They produce extra female hormones, but they also produce extra male hormones. Every female produces a small percentage of male hormones. Otherwise we would be bald and have no eyebrows. Um, only part of what we need testosterone for. But um, when the, there are lots of um, overproducing, then we produce extra male hormones and they in part um, cause the symptoms of polycystic ovarian syndrome. So they can affect the regularity of cycles. They can affect extra hair growth um, in areas that women would not normally have extra hair, such as the face or uh, back or abdomen. Um, they can affect hair falling off the head. Um, and so, so basically that's, that's what polycystic ovarian syndrome is. It is a reflection of the insulin sensitivity of the body. Once it goes into that loop where extra hormones are produced, both male and female hormones can increase insulin resistance. So it feeds off itself and breaking that cycle is key to, to managing the whole situation. We tend to try managing polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, looking at three or four different arms. The most important in my view is the metabolic effects. So the risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, 
which are, which are linked to that. And um, if obesity is one of the key factors managing that. Fertility, obviously very important for women. The good news is the majority of women with polycystic ovarian syndrome can get fertile either with or without therapy. Um, younger girls are concerned about frequency of cycles and certainly we would be concerned if the cycle was longer than three months because we do not like the lining of the uterus to go beyond that. There are risks associated. Um, and finally, the, the, um, just as important um, is the cosmetic effects. So how we manage the excess hair or the hair fall. Um, and again, there are hormonal management, there are managements that we can do. Okay. I didn't mean to talk about PCOS the whole time. I'm just, it's just front of my mind and I've become really interested. So I have one more question, um, if it's okay. The, we have a, we've spoken to girls before who said, um, the doctor put me on the birth control pill and I didn't really want to be on an oral contraceptive. And so I went on it, but I'm trying to deal with it this way. Some women just don't want to be on an oral contraceptive if they don't need to be. Is that, where do you stand on that, <laughs> that aspect? So uh, as I said, it depends on what, the end game is what her concern is. So for example, if we're getting someone who wants to get pregnant, the birth control pill absolutely is not the correct choice. However, um, if the question is, how do I get rid of the excess hair? Then actually often we will use the birth control pill in combination with other therapies to stop the testosterone. Often it is for a six to nine month period to allow all the hormones to correct because it's an easy reset. Then they can have laser which is a more permanent treatment and come off the birth control. Okay. It sounds like you're conducting a symphony when you deal with that. It's sort of, <laughs> okay. So, you know, one of the things that we hear just, it's almost again, becomes like wallpaper in the media are these high rates of obesity, diabetes, type two, all of that. When you're sitting in your office, how do you reconcile sort of the headlines over this dire situation and the people who are coming in, you're sitting in the middle, you know, like, what does it seem like to you? Is it as bad as we hear? Is it as dire as they're telling us? What's the real situation on the ground? Okay, so I, I am very lucky to actually have two hats. Um, one of them is being a clinician and sitting in clinic and seeing patients one to one. And what I tend to tell patients who have a new diagnosis of diabetes, is diabetes is like your best friend. Treat it well, and it will treat you very well and if you treat it badly it can probably hurt you more than someone who is further away once you have a diagnosis of diabetes 20 years ago we would have said this is it you've got it for life but certainly now for type 2 diabetes um, remission is is one of our targets and people who are young or not even young but who've been diagnosed with diabetes in the last five years do not require insulin therapy, a fair percentage of them can actually remit, go back to being non-diabetic, at least biochemically. Um, and the beauty of that is it almost doesn't matter what starting weight they, they start off with, losing 15% of your weight will in two thirds of people induce remission of diabetes. So that's, which is amazing. That's the first thing that we, we start off as a positive note. Um, the, on, on the, my, my second hat is actually, I, I co-represent the um, UAE in the World Obesity Federation. So we um, have quite a lot of education to physicians and allied health um, individuals about management of obesity. 
I also helped co-write the type 2 diabetes guidelines for the UAE um, under the umbrella of the Emirates Diabetes Society. So we are trying, um, and we're very lucky actually in the UAE, there is fantastic buy-in from the powers that be. So the Department of Health in Abu Dhabi is very active in both um, managing the risk of diabetes and obesity. They are collaborating with us for the um, UAE Obesity Conference, which we run every year in November. Um, and they are key partners. They've got their own program for childhood obesity. They're doing huge amounts of things. If you look around you in Abu Dhabi, there are walking paths everywhere. There, there's lots of programs being put in in the background, not necessarily being um, pushed at people or in your face, but providing the environment. Mm -hmm. um, there's the Wakaya program for healthy food at schools and everywhere you go. Um, I think we are lucky that the target of reversing the tide for both diabetes and obesity is probably more achievable in the UAE than it is elsewhere because money is less of an object than it is elsewhere. So, so the leadership is grasping the severity and they have the finances to do something about it. That's something that's really interesting because you've been in the UK and the barriers there are using taxpayer money, allocating, all that sort of thing. Sure, but even in the UK, the realization is if we can avoid um, diabetes and other disorders associated with obesity, then actually we're saving a huge amount in the longer term. Um, so even in the UK, programs have been put in simply because a, a, a pound today will save 200, 300 pounds in, in later years. Is it's there, not, oh, sorry, go ahead. It's, it's not just the, the finances, it's the quality of life, it's the young people with heart attacks, the, how many work days they lose out on, um, the renal failures with the renal dialysis, that's extremely expensive. And if you can prevent that, then actually you're doing fantastically well. What about links to later disease? I, I, I'm really curious about the links to dementia and, and there have been stats that have come out that the Middle East has set to explode in, um, in dementia rates and of course, cardiovascular disease. What are, what are those links? Can you sort of... Yeah. yeah. So, so insulin resistance per se can affect the lining of arteries. And because it's also linked to diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all of which predispose arteries to what we call atherosclerosis or thickening of the lining and cholesterol deposits um, and blockage. We, we tend to think about the more obvious ones, the heart attack, the stroke. Often the damage to the small arteries um, is less noticed, but one of the major causes, for example, for Alzheimer's, um, and certainly that is a problem. It's not just a problem in the UAE, it's a problem in the whole world because diabetes and obesity are all over the world. What we do know is that genetic predisposition to how early you get atherosclerosis um, is an issue. We know that, um, for example, um, having a heart attack at the age of 30 or 40 is very uncommon in the West. Um, it is less common in the GCC and Southeast Asia. It can occur at a younger age and therefore we we try our best to be more careful. So for example, for, for targets of cholesterol management, we, we tend to be a lot more vigilant in the local environment. Yeah. 
and hopefully that will that will reflect as reduced rates of heart attacks, reduced rates of um, Alzheimer's or other vascular disorders. I heard someone say the other day that some people are calling Alzheimer's and dementia type three diabetes in the West. I've heard that that's a term that they're using, and I guess it's because of the linkage between the insulin resistance in your youth. Yes, I'm not an expert in Alzheimer's. However, what, you're right. What the research is showing is that um, people who are less active are more likely to get Alzheimer's. People who lead a lifestyle that is um, not um, ideal have a, an increased risk of Alzheimer's. There are genetic factors. There are other factors um, related. I think let's watch this space. I wouldn't call it type three diabetes because I would, I would just, there are too many, new factors. <laughs> yeah. too many factors playing and poor old diabetes doesn't deserve that. <laughs> okay. So movement is really interesting because I think it's hard to link movement to what's actually happening in your body. But I know I've been reading a lot about insulin resistance. I'm in my fifties and I exercise, but I'm sedentary. And so there's a link between this, right? So I'm trying to walk once or twice a day, what is the link between insulin resistance and sensitivity and movement? So first of all, let me congratulate you. You do not look in your fifties. Ah. Well <laughs> um, and, and fantastic question. Thank you very much indeed. Um, so you're right. There, there are two problems. There is being sedentary and there are exercising and building your muscle. So you remember we spoke about insulin resistance and um, insulin being the key and everything else. The, the tissue in our body that is the one that uses the most glucose and the one that needs to be most insulin sensitive is our muscle. So the more muscle you build, the more glucose you will burn up, um, the more insulin sensitive you will become. And that's why having some muscle building is very important. And we tend to recommend three hours a week of something that'll make you sweat. And that could be going to the gym, swimming, cycling, carrying weights, Zumba, whatever you want to do, whatever is good for you. On the other hand, we've got this sedentary lifestyle where um, people like yourself or I will sit in an office the majority of the day. And that in itself is extremely unhealthy. Um, developing blood flow, improving the blood flow to the muscles, um, all that is associated with a sedentary lifestyle. And what we tend to say, most people have a smartphone these days. Um, your target is to have 10,000 steps a day and to have no more than one hour sitting down. Even if it means standing up, walking around your own desk 10, 20 times and having a seat, um, then that, the health benefits of that are huge. That is independent of weight. So for, for the same body mass index, someone who is less sedentary and exercises has about half the risk of cardiovascular disease. Mm. Um, exercise itself does have an effect on weight loss. It is not a huge effect, but the health benefits are huge. So we would absolutely recommend one to be active and do at least 10,000 steps every day um, consistently, as well as at least three hours of more strenuous exercise, ideally muscle build building in a week. Okay. And is there an ideal diet? We have spoken to doctors before who are, you know, uh, putting type two into remission and there's the keto always comes up as a keto diet. I wondered if you recommend a particular diet for people who are concerned. Okay. So again, there've been a multitude of studies in summary, the diet that you can stick with is the diet that is ideal. 
We know that a Mediterranean diet from a health point of view, from, from um, reducing the risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, is a very healthy diet with extra olive oil, um, vegetable-based diet. Um, with, with remission of diabetes, the diet that has taken lots of interest is called the very low calorie diet, mm -hmm. which is now prescribed by GPs in the UK. Um, and it's basically where you have one main meal that is dictated by yourself, mainly based around a meat and some vegetables, but then three um, snacks or two meals and a snack, you can call it whatever you like, are provided by a company. Mm. Um, and there are various companies who do these very low calorie diets. It tends to be done over three months or a little bit longer to reduce that 15%. And then you go on to a healthy diet from then onwards. So it's not something that you sustain for the rest of your life. That's what we tend to use for remission. You're right, a lot of people manage to lose a lot of weight on a keto diet, but it doesn't work for everyone. Intermittent fasting is another relatively new kid on the block, which tends to work really well. Um, in the UAE, people are used to fasting and therefore intermittent fasting works for some people. It reduces insulin resistance and it, it means that they have slightly more food choice which some people prefer, um, but but really the diet that works is the diet that works for that person. And losing weight quickly, you know, I come from, I've, you know, I'm older, so I've seen all the different permutations, but in my brain deep, it's like, you can't lose weight quickly. It's, it's a bad thing, but I had, I just did lose weight quickly because I had a gut issue and I had to go on a liquid diet. So I, I had, I lost weight quickly. I feel a ton better. And I'm changing my thinking about this. So I'm wondering sort of where it sits now. So like you, I'm back in the day, I used to advise people not to lose weight quickly because you will regain it quickly. There is no evidence for that at all. We now know that um, doesn't matter what rate you lose the weight, the, the trajectory back to where you were seems to be similar. So losing weight quickly, if you're able to do that, bonus because you managed to get rid of all the, all the um, associated risks. Okay. So just two more questions. One's okay. Gut issues. They have to be tied together. So many people are having IBS. Um, I had a, I had SIBO, small intestinal bacterial over, overgrowth. You're hearing so many people having this and it, it's also leading to insulin resistance. I'm just wondering, are you seeing this in your practice? What advice do you have for people if their gut is not good? So you've opened a can of worms. Eliza, <laughs> one of my last questions. <laughs> I should have been a first. <laughs> one, one of the, again, relative new kids on the block is the gut microbiome. So I, I speak about genetics, but actually the majority of genes in you today are not yours. They're of the bacteria that are in your gut. Um, and they can be altered by sugar-sweetened beverages, um, the sweeteners, all sorts of food that are processed, they, they, and, and they themselves will then send messages that convey risk um, to increase your risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And that in part, I think also feeds back to that why some people are slim, but have this increased risk or, or have a diet that doesn't fit their body, if that kind of makes sense. Um, so that's one of the things. The, the other thing to say is, as you rightly say, um, bacterial overgrowth. We've we've moved away from eating natural yogurt, 
back in the day, people would eat what were they, they were able to farm and what they were able to produce, which actually is the best food for you. And um, we're moving away from eating natural yogurts, from eating just healthy, wholesome food, whole grains. Um, and of course, that has effect on our body. Okay. We weren't made for this ultra processed food. So one argument to getting food that was grown near, near to you or as near as possible, right? Okay, my last question is a bit wacky. And I didn't tell, I didn't tell you about this beforehand. It's not, don't worry, don't be scared. (laughs) We just have a story going about uh, one of our, our multimedia editor heard that you're not supposed to drink water or eat standing up. And he's always at the gym drinking water, standing up. And then we've investigated this. And sure enough, in the Quran, the prophet Muhammad says, you need to sit down. Um, Ayurveda says you need to sit down. We've talked to all sorts of doctors. What's your take on this? Because everyone's eating and drinking, standing up on the go. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that I have the correct answer for that, but my reading of that, and, and we, we have it in Islam, and you're absolutely correct, is that food or drink is to be respected. Mm. It's not just part of running around. And if you are gonna eat, and then you should sit down and you should enjoy what you have been blessed with rather than taking it for granted. Um, are there health benefits? I'm not sure that any research has been done in that. So it's difficult for me to comment. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This has been fascinating. I love hearing all about this and I hope we can talk again sometime soon because I actually have about 25 more questions, but I'll leave. (laughs) Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that too. And sure would be honored. Okay. I appreciate it. Have a great day. And you take care. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.